Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Asban, here with my friend, Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Sukkah, daf Lamed Aleph, page 31. So our daf goes back again to the question of using stolen objects, and it begins with what happens if you use somebody's stolen wood? Can you actually steal land? What does it mean if you put a sukkah up on stolen property? So it's not that the sukkah itself is stolen, but the land that it's on is actually stolen. Um, and then it tells this interesting story about something that took place in the Reish Galut. I'm not going to read it all inside, but that this woman came and, you know, basically implied, well, not implied, basically said that the Reish Galuta used her wood and that his the servant stole her wood and used it to build a sukkah. Rav Nachman basically ignores her. But the point of the story is to say that even if you stole somebody's wood to build your sukkah, you only have right as the owner uh, to the um, the monetary value, but you don't actually have the right to the wood itself, which is very, very interesting. And then we get to a very famous passage here. I'm a Ravina. So Ravina says, Let's say somebody steals a large beam for a sukkah, right? So the sages instituted an ordinance basically that the robber doesn't need to sort of return it intact because of the takanat marish, the ordinance of the beam. So what is this talking about here? We're talking about a case where <clears throat> somebody didn't steal wood, but you stole a nice, big, large, finished beam. And basically, if you incorporate it into your, um, into your house, for example, okay, you would actually be required to dismantle your house and return the beam. But here, right, what we said, but that's really what the Allah would be. But the rabbis come and they made this takana that basically said, instead of the robber having to repay the monetary, the repay, sorry, dismantle the house and give back the beam, it's, it, it's enough, it's sufficient enough for the robber just to pay the monetary value of the beam itself. And the reason for that is, is because they wanted to encourage somebody who stole something to actually do teshuva. And they recognize something interesting about human nature, that if you were going to require them to take down an entire house that they built, it's less likely uh, that they would uh, that they would 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 uh, do that. And so the same thing Ravina says is true about a sukkah, that if somebody stole a beam to use for a sukkah, you're not actually required to return the beam itself. You just would be required to pay the owner back uh, for the um for the uh, value of it. And I think it's interesting to see this Takanat Marish that, you know, sometimes what the court system does in terms of having something be paid back, we do it in a way not so much necessarily like what the owner deserves. Of course, the owner deserves their actual beam, but more about like, how can we encourage people to do the right thing? So it's not so much about the person who was stolen from, but it's more about the experience of the robber, which I think is very interesting. So then the Gemara goes on to say Pshita. So the Gemara wants to understand what here and why did Ravina actually need to bring this up? And so it says the following Pshita, my So they want to understand, well, why is what Ravina taught any different than what we just learned about with the with the with what which I only mentioned, I didn't actually read on the DAP itself. But the point is is that just as if you steal wood and use it for your sukkah, you just have to pay the money back. Right, that was the whole story with the Rish Galuta. So the same is true with the beam. 
right? So maybe the difference here is, is that maybe we would have thought wood is very common, okay? And therefore, but here with the large beam, which is not common, right? On my load, there's no, what they were referring to here, there's no what, there's no yeish, there's no despair. And what the idea here is, is that maybe we would have thought that Dafka with a beam, where the owner's never really going to forget about the really is always want that beam back because a beam is very valuable. So maybe for a beam, we would say you actually have to return the beam. But no, we basically say that's not the case. Kamash Malan, Ravina teaches us that even this ordinance applies to the beam as well. And the robber just has to return its uh, just has to return its monetary value. But now they come with really what I think is the most interesting part of this. Honey Mile Begoy Shiva. This halacha that the robber doesn't need to take apart the sukkah only applies to the seven days of the Chag itself, of Sukkot itself. About Lebater Shiva But let's say it's after Sukkot and it's when you would normally take down the sukkah, then we actually would want that the robber would return the actual beam itself. But if the robber, let's say, attached it with mortar, so it's actually permanently fixed to the sukkah. So we built the sukkah in a way that it's not a sukkah that you would necessarily dismantle even after the seven days. Then this takanat meirish, this takana stays in place and the robber just needs to give the monetary value. So I think here we bring up two interesting pieces. Again, the emphasis is on sort of the experience of the robber and wanting to encourage the robber to do teshuva. And it's a less about righting the wrong of what is actually owned, owed to the owner, which I think is fascinating. And last, that we make this distinction between the sukkah during the seven days that the sukkah is actually used versus the sukkah afterwards. That maybe after Sukkot, yeah, let him dismantle it because he doesn't really need the sukkah anymore. That this special halacha only really applies to Sukkot itself. So I, I'm a little reluctant to, to suggest this. It's a little bit off book, but on the other hand, I think it's maybe relevant. You know, there's this joke of the guy who makes a sukkah on the sidewalk in front of his apartment building and the neighbors complain and the police come and they say, you know, the nice Jewish policeman comes or it doesn't really matter for the sake of the joke, right? It says, oh my goodness, you've violated so many city ordinances. Just make sure that you clear, you know, you have to get rid of this. You have to make sure it's gone in a week or eight days, whatever, right? Meaning there's this wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We know that what you're doing is a sukkah, that the sukkah is there for a temporary amount of time. It's really relatively brief and it's going to be really just fine, you know, as long as you remove it within the same period of time. Um, so then I'm wondering if that isn't something kind of behind what's going on here, that the when, that Chazal are offering this thief who's using this beam for the sake of the sukkah are they offering a little bit, not clemency, but a little bit of more generosity that you have to return the value and you don't have to return the beam itself until Sukkot is over. And then once Sukkot is over, of course, you know, return the beam because wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We know that as soon as Sukkot is over, you would not, like, you no longer need that. And also, like, you would not be a thief or not for the sake of this holiday. So, like, again, we all know that there are people who are, you know, not everybody who keeps one mitzvah keeps all mitzvot, and not everybody who, who violates one avera violates all of them. I don't want to say that there's no such thing as somebody who would steal for the sake of making a sukkah, because if you're making a sukkah, of course you wouldn't steal. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think that there's something, you know, that the the bigger picture here may be relevant in terms of how generous Chazal are willing to be for the person who's stealing for the sake of making the sukkah, and then once the sukkah is gone, 
you know, like, I wonder how generous would they be if the thief were stealing diamonds for the sake of, you know, personal wealth? I'm not sure that it would be the same answer. Um, okay, that said, I'm going to continue in the Gemara, and it actually shifts gears and goes back to our dry lulav. Tana, Yavesh Pasul, right? We know, right, that a dry lulav is not going to be kosher for to take for the Dalad meaning. Rabbi Yehuda Machshir, except for lo and behold, Rabbi Yehuda says it's fine, it's kosher. I'm a rav. So now, again, the next generation, we're going to have a commentary. Machlok at Belulav. What's the, what's the dispute with regard to Lulav? The Rabbanan Savri Makshina Lulav Etrog. Rabbanan said, take a Lulav and compare it to an Etrog. My Etrog by Hadar, the same way that an Etrog is supposed to be beautiful, Aflulav by Hadar. So it's one of the four species. Also, the Lulav needs to be beautiful, meaning the implication being that if it's dry, it's not going to be beautiful. It's not going to be it's in its state of beauty. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, no, don't compare them at all. Don't put them together. Meaning everybody accepts that you need to have hidor, you need to have beautification for the sake of the etrog, which makes sense because the verse about an etrog to begin with is a pre eight hadar. Hadar is part and parcel of the identity of an etrog. The question is whether you learn this relevant, you know, the, the comment of beautification with regard to etrog, do you apply it also to Lulav or not? And that is the machloket. So then the Gemara continues. Uvalulav, lo by Rabbi Huda Hadar. Doesn't Rabbi Huda require beauty for the case of the Lulav? Vahatadan, Rabbi Huda Omer. Yagednu bilimala, maitama, lav mishum debai hadar. Isn't the very fact that we're going to bind the Lulav from the top, right? So that it should, isn't that the whole idea that it should look nicer? Meaning that's beautification, right? And the Gemara says, no. So it says, no, it, the, the binding there, according to Rabbi Huda, is following the name of Rabbi Tarfon, that the Pasuk, the verse says, that the branches, quote, plural, right, branches of a date palm. So then Chazal understand the kapot branches to be kafut. I don't think I read that right, actually. The first time it's kaput, the second time it's kafut to mean bound. And so then the leaves need to be bound because it's kind of a play on the words within the actual biblical text. And it's not about, it, it's not that it should look nice, it's that it should be an embodiment of this verse. Below by Hadar, so the Gemara still is harping on this, right? Doesn't, doesn't Rabbi Huda nonetheless require beauty? V'hatanan, ein ogdin atalulav ela bimino, divri Rabbi Huda. We have a Mishnah where, where one said you you bind the lulav with its own kind, right? And and I think everybody knows this, right? That if you look at a lulav and the the ties around it or any kind of holder for the lulav and etrog together, it's always um, woven from like the stalks, right? That would be from a from a lulav. My tama love mishum dubai hadar. Isn't that a way of beautifying it? So I feel like again this this gemara is working very hard to show how you know. But really, Rabbi Huda, don't you really require beautification? And again, the Gemara says, no. Lo afilu basiv, afilu didikla. Rabbi says, Rabbi, Rabbi Huda's position was you have to bind the lulav. But you, excuse me, you could bind the lulav with the fiber that grows around at the bottom of the trunk of the tree or with the root of the tree. Meaning it's not going to be pretty. It's not about prettiness. It's not about beautification. The Ella, my time and Rabbi Huda Hatam, excuse me. Why? What's Rabbi Huda's rationale there? The Kasavar Lulav Tarich Eged. 
Why does you have to bring, what is the, okay, the verse is kaput tamarim, so from that we learn kafut, we understand that it has to be bound. And once you say it has to be bound, it has to be bound with the, the same material or the same substance, really, from that date palm, from the luluf, which is the same tree. Why not use anything else? And the answer is because you're only bringing four minim four different species. And the moment you would bind it from something else, that would be considered five species. And then you're in trouble for baltosi. meaning you you can't do that, right? We, we don't have more than four species in the taking of the four species. Okay. So finally, the Gemara accepts Rabbi Huda's position that he does not require beautification for the lulav. And now we're going to ask, but does he really require it for the etrog? Over etrog me by Rabbi Huda Hadar. Does he really? Vahatanya arbaat minin shabalulav so again, Rabbi Huda, does he really require this beauty? We know from this brighter that we have four species of love. You can't use fewer. You can't use more. Lo matza etrog, lo yavi, lo parish, velo ribon, velo devarcher, kemushin, kshirin, yveshin, psulin, Rabbi Huda omer, av yveshin. So... It goes through this whole list of, you know, if you don't have an etrog, what could you do? Instead, it says, don't bring, don't bring a quince, don't bring a pomegranate, don't bring anything else. If they're a little bit dry, it's okay. If they're completely dry, they're not okay. But Rabbi Huda says, even dry etrogim are okay. So that already is a really strong departure from everything that we've seen so far. So now we've got a story. Rabbi says, there's a story involving the People who lived in the cities, uh, they would give their lulavim to their grandchildren. Meaning, think about how long that lulav has to stick around. So then Chazal said, "I'm like, okay, so you're saying that they would keep this so that the grandchildren have a lulav to use? That sounds like, you know, according to Chazal, that might be like exigent circumstances." We're not going to bring any proofs for what the ideal is, for what the mitzvah is, from a shadad chak, from a from a circumstance that is, you know, a, a pressing need to have a lulav. I'm sorry, I don't. I this is an important piece of grammar, but I want to jump to the next bit because I still want to finish out the beauty part, um, not the numbers part. Tashma etrog hayashan pasul so the claim is very simple, right? The the general principle is that an etrog, an old etrog, a dried etrog, that's the implication, is um, is not going to work. It's pasul. But Rabbi Huda says it's kosher, it's fine. Tiyufta, derava, tiyufta. And this then means it's we've got a refutation of the opinion of Rava, because Rava is the one who said that everybody agrees that an etrog requires hidur, hadar, that it has to be beautified, or it requires beauty. And so then the Gemara concludes, like, okay, you know, it, it's no longer true. It's not true that everybody requires this because look at that. Rav Yehuda does not. Rav Yehuda requires the taking of the four species. But the fact that one is dry or the fact that two are dry, even an etro could be dry, it doesn't bother him. The Hadar factor of it there is not his priority. Um, and and it stands as a refutation for Rav's claim that everybody agrees here. Okay. Um, yeah, Dana. Did you have anything that you wanted to add? Well, the way that the Gemara introduces, again, for a second time, the concept of Hidur Mitzvah, but it's a question about whether or not does Hidur apply to Lulav. So 
always observing when the Gemara sort of deep dives into a discussion without level setting about what is the actual concept that they're talking about first. We would have thought that they would have talked about where do we get the concept of Kidur from? What does it apply to? And then you would go through, does it, you know, the questions, right? Does it apply to this or not apply to that? But it starts the discussion with a question, which is fascinating. Um, yes. And I just want to add, by the way, because I did stop, you know, mid-daf, the daf continues with tr- still trying to get Rabbi Yehuda to say, or, you know, to flesh out his opinion to say that really, really, really he requires Hidur beauty and and really each time, it, you know, it goes back to say, but he doesn't. And then, of course, the most important question is what does he do with that verse, right? For for the pre Tadar, you know, how, how can it be that the etrog does not require beauty? And basically, Rabbi Yehuda understands that puzzle to mean that the fruit... It says here, Hadar no Mishana Shana, that the fruit itself is dwelling on the tree from year to year. It's a, I think this is called a perennial. I'm not sure if that's really the right botanical term. It, meaning it's it's going to be, it's going to rejuvenate, right? It, you don't have to plant it each year. Um, and then, of course, the point is that that's not Hadar beauty at all. It's Hadar, one who lives, one who dwells, which is a completely different interpretation. Right. And I think that it's great to see the Gemara really doesn't like this opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. (laughs) Like over. No, but maybe in this case, it must be because of here. It must be here. It must be here. And they keep going back like, nope, we could find another reason. So it's it's a pretty funny back and forth. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.